this is future Allison just popping in because there are a few things that I forgot to say in this podcast episode. So I wanted to start by saying the situation that we're talking about here with coronavirus is a rapidly moving target. So it's possible that some of the things that we touch on in this episode are no longer relevant by the time you listen to this episode. But I hope that you still listen to it and that you learn from what I have to share, even if uh, some of it is is no longer relevant. But I'm, I'm, I'm thinking probably a lot of it will still be relevant, unfortunately. I also wanted to make note, I talk about the idea of being housebound or homebound as a disabled or chronically ill person. And I mentioned that I am not housebound. And I also, I just wanted to clarify that I'm not currently housebound, but I actually have been housebound in my life. So I am speaking from personal experience when I'm talking about that. At around three minutes and 15 seconds into this, um, I talk about people who work full-time jobs, and I'm actually talking about people who work benefited jobs. I will also be talking at length about my own illnesses and diagnoses in a future episode. I briefly touch on those in this episode to give you some context for my perspective, but I will be delving into those um, much with much more depth in the future. And finally, I want to say I am not a medical professional. I'm not a scientist. So everything that I say should be regarded as personal opinion and not as fact. And as always, if you are sick, call a doctor. (laughs) With that note, I hope you enjoy the podcast. Hello, my name is Allison, and you're listening to the first episode of The Illness Chronicles. This is a podcast idea in which I document my journey with chronic illness, things that have helped and hurt me, hopefully speak to other people who live with illness and or disability. Um, This is about combating social isolation and getting stories heard that aren't normally heard, especially by able-bodied folks who I am. I'm a 29-year-old white cisgender queer Ashkenazi Jewish woman living with chronic illness in rural Massachusetts in the U.S. I'm also a storyteller, a writer, a theater director, an educator, and I build plays from scratch with groups of people of all ages. I am currently able to work full-time, which is a huge privilege because a lot of people who live with chronic illness are not able to do that, and it's also a physical challenge. But today... This is a podcast episode responding to thoughts and feelings that I and other folks who are living with chronic illness and disability are having about what it feels like to be living through the coronavirus right now. Um, Today is March 15th, 2020, and uh, I live in the USA, and coronavirus or COVID-19 is rapidly uh, spreading. in the U.S., and it's a pretty scary time. Um, and I know that a lot of folks who live with chronic illness and disability are feeling especially vulnerable right now. Um, uh, for full disclosure, um, chronic illnesses are not interchangeable, so the experiences that different people have are totally vastly different based on the illness and also based on um, experience person-to-person people who have the same illness might not have the same experiences or symptoms. Like I said before, I'm someone who is able to work full time, but a lot of people who have my illnesses are not able to. Um, 
and there's a spectrum of experiences. Um, so I'm speaking from a place of privilege because I am not immunocompromised, but I am part of a community that is widely immunocompromised, meaning that their immune systems are compromised and are they're, they're in a vulnerable place right now. They're at risk populations um, with the coronavirus. So when you hear people say nobody is in danger with the coronavirus except for people over the age of 65 and people with pre-existing conditions or immunocompromised folks, they're talking about this community a lot of the time. And I know that this has been an especially weird time because all of a sudden we're seeing accommodations being made by workplaces that previously and schools that previously were seen as um, impossible. So folks very quickly have been able to rally together and work from home, learn from home, not in all instances. Um, hourly wage folks and gig workers and artists are really struggling, but folks who work full-time jobs or who, in, who are in school are able to figure out ways to work from home. Um, and that's been a huge point of contention in the chronic illness and disability community because um, in the past and now, it's been extremely hard to fight for accommodations. If you need to be part-time from home or full-time from home, um, a lot of people have lost their jobs, lost their ability to be in school, um, or even been expelled because of the need for accommodations. So it's it's an interesting time. Um, and there's also a lot of interesting, I keep saying interesting, it's not interesting, it's like really scary, like the end of the world. <laughs> but there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of judgment right now about the idea of being housebound. Like that's an idea that really scares people. Um, so that's something that I want to touch on in this episode, because there are a lot of people who live housebound and live perfectly wonderful lives, fruitful lives, despite that. Um, and also this has highlighted the failure of the healthcare system um, as it is right now. And um, it's just sort of interesting that these three issues, accommodation, judgments about being housebound and the failure of the healthcare system, are daily issues for people who live with chronic illness and disability. And because it's this is a widespread pandemic at this point in March, um, able-bodied people are starting to see the cracks in our system that are inherent and very apparent for chronic illness and disability folks on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, and I, so I feel like there's, although it's a really scary time, there's this little twinge of hope that a lot of folks have that maybe this is a time for change, that maybe this is a time when we're going to see that the cracks in, in our system that makes it not accessible to a lot of people, um, poor folks and sick folks and disabled folks, um, that maybe this is a chance for the system to change and be more accessible to all. Um, and that's exciting because we sort of need able-bodied people on board and helping with this fight in order to make real change happen. So um, I thought it would be interesting to do a little bit of a Q&A for this first episode. Um, so I'm going to bring in my producer, Josh, and he's going to ask me some questions. And Josh is, Josh does not live with chronic illness, but he is um, becoming more and more familiar with chronic illness because someone in his life lives with chronic, chronic illness. Who's that? That's me. I'm oh, his partner. Okay. <laughs> I live with it and he lives with me. You do look awfully familiar. We know each other. It's true. 
So Allison, the first basic question is, what are your illnesses? Yeah. So my uh, my main illness is a, a chronic pain disorder called fibromyalgia. Fibromyalgia affects the myofascial system. Um, some people think of it as a neurological disorder. There's a lot of um, conflicting opinions in the medical field because it's not a very well-researched disorder or disease. Um but basically, it's a, it's, a, it's a disorder that makes people who have it feel like their bodies are inflamed. Um, and people who have fibromyalgia are extremely sensitive to pain and touch. Um, and that affects certain trigger points all over the body. Um, and there are lots of symptoms that come with having fibromyalgia that are different for different people. But some of the ones that affect me are um, daily brain fog, which is this feeling of being fuzzy and confused and like forgetting what you're going to say. Um, dizziness, nausea, um, uh, low-grade fevers, um, neurological issues sometimes, um, pain all over the body and especially in my left side, headaches, um, uh, various various other symptoms. Um, and then I have two uh, what's called comorbidities, which is like a very strange term because it makes it sound like they're fatal, but they are it, not. It does have morbid in the <laughs> middle of it, which I feel like some people would strike some people as people don't like it very much. Not as a great a term. word to hear. Yeah. Um, so I'll say co-illnesses, um, and those are chronic fatigue syndrome, which is now more recently known as ME or myalgic encephalomyelitis, which is a very long word and sounds kind of like the name of like a worm or something. Like an evil worm. A mythic worm. Yes. Um, and chronic fatigue syndrome, CFS or ME, um, is exactly what it what it sounds like. It's often brought on by a period of intense illness, um, but it leaves the person who's experiencing it completely exhausted physically and mentally fatigued. Um, it varies in severity and in length of dura duration. For some folks, it lasts their whole life. Um, and as with other chronic illnesses, it has... Time, periods of rest and periods of flare-up where it's worse. Um, and I also have IBS, which is um, irritable bowel syndrome, which is actually a very common co-illness of a lot of chronic illnesses, including fibromyalgia. And I won't go into that, but it's the pooping one. And your Ashkenazi background in some ways predisposes you to that. Well, my Ashkenazi background probably predisposes me to all of this. It's not so, great. Thanks, mom and dad. Good genes. Allison, what was your journey like to actually getting diagnosed with fibromyalgia? So I'll keep this quick because I want to do this in a future longer episode. But it, it took me seven years to be diagnosed with fibromyalgia. Um, even now, I am pretty sure that I've not been, I've not seen the end of my diagnoses because there are a lot of other co-illnesses with fibromyalgia that I experienced symptoms of. Um, but yeah, it took a really long time. And on average, it takes women seven to 10 years to be diagnosed because of either misdiagnosis or um, not being believed by the medical professionals that you're seeing. Um, and for me, it was a mixture of that and periods of wellness versus periods of flare-up being confusing and also um, not being recommended to see the correct specialists for seven years. How do your illnesses impact your daily life? So 
as Josh can attest to, because he lives with me. It's true. I do. <laughs> my uh, my illnesses impact my daily life differently every single day. There are times of the year that are worse when allergy season is really bad or winter is really, really hard. Um, and uh, Or if I have done something to trigger my illness flare up, that can be really hard, like not getting a solid night's sleep or going to sleep early enough, eating things that are triggers to me, a period of stress, working long hours, um, doing physical things that overly exert me, things like that can cause flare-ups. Um, so some days I live a totally uh, average life where I'm going to work and able to hang out with friends and be a good, strong partner and family member and all of that. And then some days I am bedridden and not able to do much um, at all. So Allison, you provided me with some sort of rapid fire Q&A questions about you commonly get as someone with chronic illness. So I'm going to ask you a few of them. Sounds so, good. So first off, Allison, you know, you say you're sick, but you don't look sick to me. Well, that's interesting, Josh. You can see my insides? Sometimes. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, so a lot of people in the chronic illness community get this comment, uh, but you don't look sick. And that's the whole point. Chronic illness, um, usually, not always, there are some conditions that you actually can see sometimes, like lupus, which makes a rash on your face and a butterfly shape. But a lot of chronic illnesses are called invisible illnesses because you can't see them to look at me. So there's literally no way that you could tell how I'm feeling based on how I'm looking, especially because I wear makeup to work. So Allison, I know you've talked about feeling sick. Are you feeling better today? Well, Josh, since unfortunately I have a chronic illness and it does not go away, I may not be feeling better today. Maybe I am, but it can be very, very annoying and frustrating to every day hear are you feeling better today when you know that it's very likely that you might feel better today, but then tomorrow you'll feel worse again? Whereas with regular acute illnesses that people experience for short-term periods, it's likely that they will feel bad and then they'll feel better and then they won't feel bad again. But for me, it's not linear like that. So, Allison, why is it that the things you do today you couldn't do yesterday? Or why can't you do things tomorrow that you could do today? That's because I don't know how the things I did today or yesterday are going to affect me today or tomorrow. So there's this theory called the spoon theory, which is this idea that basically it's a way of cataloging how you're feeling um, as someone who lives with chronic illness. But it's this idea that we start the day, we all start the day with a certain number of spoons, and I'm putting that in quotations. And different activities that we do take away spoons. And so by the time you get to a certain activity that you have to do, you might have 10 spoons with which to do that activity, or you might be down to two spoons. And based on how you're feeling that day, different activities can take different numbers of spoons. So if I worked 12 hours one day, and then the next day I wake up and I wake up with only four spoons, and that's what I have to get through the day, Maybe that's a day where I can't shower or can't get myself lunch or can't go to work or something like that. Um, so that's why I can't do the same things that I did yesterday. Well, that's a good lead in for my next question, Allison. It must be fun to stay at home all the time. Is, is it fun? Uh, well, I'm not doing it for fun. So, no, I'd say if I'm staying home because of my illness, it's probably because I feel so crappy that I can't do anything else. So, no, there's like a pretty intense sense of FOMO. 
I'm going to read the next prompt as written. You're just lazy. That's well, really, really rude, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's a super rude thing can, can to re- say. Can I rephrase it? Yeah. Are you just lazy? Mm. Better? It still feels rude. So, um, no, I'm not just lazy. Um, especially with ME, there are times when my body will literally not allow me to do things. Um, it's like as though you have... Like if you had a sack of boulders tied to your body and you were like trying to move up a mountain, but you couldn't because you were tethered to the earth. That's what it feels like. So it's not like a mind over matter thing. You can't think your way out of chronic illness flare ups. You literally just have to listen to your body and rest or they become much worse. Aren't you just exaggerating? No, I'm not. And that's, thank you for, for that one, because that's one that we hear a lot from doctors and medical professionals. So a lot of, a lot of times, especially women and queer patients, but everyone who reports chronic symptoms is told that they're exaggerating, that they're being dramatic, it can't be that bad, but you don't look sick. All of these things are used, all of these ideas are used to gaslight patients and basically make it so that they don't get the treatment that they need or the diagnostics that they need because you can't see the illness. And a lot of times nothing comes up on tests for these illnesses as well. That's awful. I don't know what I would do if I was in your position. I feel so bad for you. That is one that's only, that's recently started to really bug me because um, chronic illness and disability and or disability can happen to literally anyone. You could be in a car accident, you could become very sick, um, and it could happen to anyone. So this idea that like you don't know what you'd do if you were in my position, you could easily be in my position. Um, chronic illness and disability do not... Discriminate. Yeah. Chronic illness and disability do not discriminate. They are all-inclusive experiences. Allison, you're so inspiring. You give me hope. This is everything. Well, yeah, this is life. Hashtag this is life. Um, as, as much as I'm, you know, flattered that you think of me in such a, such a light, um, I'm just living my daily life and nothing that I'm doing is inspiring because if you were in my position, you too would just be doing your very best. Um, so I'm not trying to be hope porn for you. Um, and I think a lot of folks, especially wheelchair users, um, get that a lot and I'm not a wheelchair user but um, a lot of folks who who use um, mobility aids get that a lot like wow that's it's your life must be so hard you give me hope when you get up every day and you walk through the it's like what do you expect them to do just like die no they're they're living their lives so just please just act normal and chill for one second Allison, I've seen you walk before. You don't really need a wheelchair. So again, I'll say this is not not about me because I am not a, a wheelchair user. But um, there is such a thing as an ambulatory wheelchair user. So what that means is that um, there are folks who use wheelchairs or mobility aids sometimes. That doesn't mean they don't use them because they can't walk. They use them because either they're going through a period of time or flare up where they can't walk Or it's just a lot easier for them to use mobility aids to get around. Some folks with chronic fatigue syndrome are ambulatory wheelchair users because they're too exhausted sometimes to get around. And then sometimes they are able to. Some people with EDS are ambulatory wheelchair users 
And yeah, you should never assume that someone in a wheelchair is there all the time. You know, Allison, sometimes I'm really tired and I get brain fog and I can't do the things I want to do. I understand why people say this one, and it's because they are trying to relate to the experiences of the person with chronic illness or disability. Um, and that's really beautiful. Unfortunately, I think it, it often has sort of the um, the opposite effect where it can feel it can make someone feel like they're not seen because the experience of an able-bodied person occasionally feeling really, really tired or really confused is not the same as a, a, a chronic symptom, meaning that it's recurring and something that you have to deal with all the time. And that is pretty severe sometimes to the point where it makes it difficult to function. So I think trying to compare your own experiences isn't as useful as just saying like, wow, that really sucks. I'm sorry that that's happening. Uh, there, these are some some things that I can offer you. This is what I can do right now. Are these things helpful? Um, I think offering things that are helpful and just showing that it's okay to say that it really sucks to be in that position is a lot more useful than trying to empathize when you maybe just don't have that experience. Man, you must be really down on yourself not being a contributing over to society and staying inside all the time and feeling crappy. I don't know what I would do. So I'm really excited about touching on this one throughout this episode because um, first off, I want to say this and I'm going to say this numerous times. No one's worth is based on how productive they are in society. So even someone who's housebound, even if you have no energy to do anything but lie, lie there and sleep, you still matter. Your life still matters. And um, the idea that to be a contributing, and again, this is in quotes, contributing member of society. You have to be up and about in the world working full-time in an office or something like that. Um, that's such a horrible idea because um, that's that's capitalism. That's toxic capitalism. Our worth is not based on what we do in our for work. Allison, thank you for that informative Q&A. So what's it like inside the chronic illness community right now, now that conversations around being housebound and widespread illness awareness are spreading so dramatically as a result of COVID-19? So I'm feeling pretty scared and angry right now. Um, I'm not scared for myself because I'm not immunocompromised, but I am really, really angry. I feel like this um, this pandemic is revealing how complacent and selfish our society is Um I, I saw pictures on my Instagram last night of people like out at restaurants and bars, even though all news and media is telling people that social distancing, which we'll get into in a minute, is the way to go um, with with trying to prevent the spread of COVID-19. Um, and when you're trying to prevent the spread, you're trying to keep people safe, people who are at risk and vulnerable. And so going out and like partying <laughs> Just it shows like a lack of care for a lot of the community and a lot of the world and for people who are vulnerable. And it's gross. Um, and yeah, it makes me feel really, really angry um, because we're we're at a, t a turning point right now. And if we're going to save our planet and our communities, we're going to have to work together and we're all going to have to take the same measures. And I, this is a sort of a self-evident question, but I have heard from 
in 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 some of the the fringes of society or among people who I think are speaking very candidly at a very crazy time, I've heard some folks talk about like, well, this is part of nature where you know an illness emerges and people who can't handle it die because that's part of the natural cycle. Uh, you know, certainly as someone who, by some definitions, would be like, well, Allison has X, Y, and Z. Maybe we should breed her out of the the gene the gene pool. You know, what's what's your response to that kind of conversation? That sounds like Nazism, Josh. That's my answer to that question. Um, the idea that we should like weed out the people who are seen as weak and vulnerable because they aren't, again, like contributing members of our society, in quotes, is really terrifying because those are the ideals that began the Holocaust. And it's, it's fine to see the contemporary corporate version of that, where you were talking earlier about, you know, proof of, of worth to society as determined by your ability to contribute to this economic system. So it's it's a, it's a pretty wild time to consider those overlapping ideologies of, you know, natural selection and a corporatized culture. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's really a scary time to be living in a capitalist society that's rapidly crumbling. So in line of that, you, know, you also, a topic you wanted to talk about was the fact that you know, for a lot of folks like us, like we're two young white people in our late 20s living in a relatively, well, we live in a part of the world that actually is kind of one of the hotspots right now for what's going on, which is pretty wild. Woohoo! Yay, we're on the map. It's a bad map. Don't. You don't want to be on the not map. Not a good map. Uh, so, you know, some people are talking like, well, you don't need to worry. You're young and in, in your health. Don't worry. This is only going to affect old people. I have so much community, especially online. Um that falls into the category, like I said, of immunocompromised or at risk. Um, so when I see, and my family and friends who are over the age of 65. So when I see that, when I see people saying that, what I hear them saying is, you're, I'm safe personally. I don't really care about anyone else because like they don't really matter. And that's really gross. So like, for, first off, I want to clarify. So the people who are especially at risk in this um, pandemic are uh, people over the age of 60 to 65. I've seen different numbers, different places. Folks who are experiencing houselessness, folks who are incarcerated, poor folks, people with cardiovascular disease, cancer, diabetes, respiratory illness, and people who take immune suppressants. Um, and a lot of people who live with chronic illness take immune suppressants. So that includes folks with lupus and HIV, MS, Crohn's, rheumatoid arthritis, and more. All of those people, that's a large percentage of the population. All of those people are not disposable. And to say that it's okay because it's only going to affect those people. Those people matter. Um, and also that's showing, like, it shows racism. Well, it, it, it's also people talk about, well, only you know 97% of the population is non-lethal. Let's say it's a single digit number. That's millions of people. The people you're talking about represent a huge swath of society. And you talked about it touching on race. And certainly I think about how climate change often affects folks of color and indigenous folks on the front line. This is the same thing. Those communities are disenfranchised. They have no faith in a system that has not offered them much. And they're sort of the people who have to bear the brunt of this most often. And we've talked a lot during this time about folks who don't have healthcare, folks who don't have paid time off, folks who live as independent contractors, many people we know, certainly having a lot of friends in the artistic community, all of their work for the next two months is just vanished overnight. And there's no social security net for those folks. So 
Yeah, I think you, you, this is a, a huge topic. I'm happy you brought it up. It's a good podcast. <laughs> and that's a really, I love that um, stamp of approval because Josh is a podcaster himself. Um, but yeah, I was going to say racism and classism are inherent in this 100%. And I, I like that you touched on climate change as well because, you know, my hope is that in this um, disaster that we're going through right now that hopefully we start collectively taking climate change a lot more seriously of course you know I don't feel too optimistic about that but I really hope that that's the case um but yeah folk like are are you really saying that everyone who is homeless is disposable are you really saying that people who are poor or incarcerated should die like that's what I hear when you say don't worry you're not at risk well, and it also that kind of dialogue like validates a system that has created the consolidation of wealth that has no reason at all to exist. So the suggestion that only because we live in a system that allows corporate oligarchs to control resources, those people are now rendered worthless. So it's pretending that this is a normal system that's yes. happening normally. It's that's a complete fantasy. Yes, we're we're trying to live in a system that's trying to force feed us this idea that we have to be productive and like make money for the government in order to matter. And like that's insane. That's that's just sorry not to say not insane. That is wild. That's a wild idea. The, the fact that there's no national health care system, the fact that homelessness is an absolute crisis, that housing is completely not meeting the needs of our population, the fact that all of these systems have been taken away from us by private needs it speaks to how unnatural what's happening really is. Which leads me to my next question. You know, I'm not at risk. Why should I social distance? You know, I'm fine. And what is social distancing? It sounds like a Seinfeld thing, right? It really does sound like a Seinfeld thing or a Curb thing. Um, oh my gosh, I can't wait to see the Curb episode on L- this. Larry time. David's reaction to this, I think, is what. Where we're is all... Larry David's voice in all of this? Honestly, mm. um, so social distancing. There are lots of different opinions on what this is and how it should be implemented. So I'll just share from my personal perspective that, um, based on the research I've done, social distancing is. Um, the idea that you should remove yourself from social situations in order to um, prevent the rapidity of the spread of this disease. Um, So that includes, and again, this is from my perspective because I've seen lots of different stuff floating around on the internet, but this includes basically all social gatherings. Um, You shouldn't be hanging out with friends. You shouldn't be going to restaurants. You shouldn't be going to bars and clubs. You shouldn't, if you're able to stay home from work um, and your work is not deemed essential, you should there. You should, I know that's really, really hard because we're put in this horrible position where we have to choose between a lot of us, our livelihoods and, Uh, keeping ourselves and others safe and that's really gross so I say come on government we need some funding Um, but yeah so that's social distancing Um, and I also have this quote here from Catherine Troisi who is an epidemiologist with the U of T Health Health Science Center um, in the School of Public Health there and she says that social distancing has previously been successful in slowing the spread of disease. For instance, during the 1918 H1N1 influenza pan- pandemic, we had a natural experiment, this is a quote, with the two cities of Philadelphia and St. Louis. St. 
Louis, shut down community gatherings, schools, churches, etc. early on before there were many influenza infections in the community. Philadelphia waited later into the pandemic to do so and did allow large gatherings at first. During that winter, while St. Louis did have cases of the flu, the rate of infection was significantly lower than in Philadelphia. Um, that's from an article on the U of T Health Science Center website. And I like that you brought that St. Louis flair to it. Yeah, you know, uh, I'm from the Berkshires, so. <laughs> <laughs> Pronunciations mean nothing. Let me ask you this. We're talking about social distancing. It occurs to me that, you know, you know, the, the, the Lars Van True movie Melancholia is a great movie, which suggests that in the case of disaster, folks who've suffered from depression are, in a way, the most prepared to respond to that kind of thing. So it occurs to me that in an era where distancing and being homebound are part of a solution to a pandemic, folks who have chronic illness, in a way, are the most prepared for that circumstance. So, you know, what tips do you have as someone who experiences that regularly to, to stay in touch with people, to stay occupied and, 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 and busy? Do you have any advice just, you know, based on your own experiences? Yeah. So a lot of folks live housebound at least part-time, if not full-time. Um, and so this could be an interesting time to rethink our conception of what it means to be productive, as I keep talking about. Um, and it can also be a time to be really creative. Um, so reaching out to friends that you haven't talked to in a while through video chat or phone calls, um, watching movies together. There are websites where you can watch movies at the same time as other people, like watch to the number two gather.com, um, virtual community art projects, um, I rely heavily on social media for connection with other folks with chronic illness. But of course, doing that in small increments right now is probably very healthy. And I need to get a little bit better at that because it's a little bit hard. I, I think we're both in positions between my day job and your community where going on Twitter can be truly entering a sewer full of panic. And it's not great. So I, I hear you. That's a really hard balance to, to, to meet. A hundred percent. But um. So I actually got sent an answer to this question by a blog called Grow, Eat, Gift. You can follow them on Twitter. And they sent me an article by a writer who lives with Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome on quotations, how to stay sane when you're stuck indoors. Um, and they recommend engaging with nature, looking out the window a lot, watching nature videos, crafting even if you're not good at it making your own toiletries <laughs> like face masks and stuff like that listening to podcasts or I'll add books on tape um, a lot of libraries have an app for this and I use mine and I'm actually listening to the body keeps the score right now and it's super super interesting especially for folks who live with chronic illness and disability um, write stories or poems cook if you can read or just watch tv and I also want to say even if you are homebound or housebound now, you don't have to do anything. You don't have to do anything to have worth. Even if you were just staying home, even if you were, if you're working from home or not working from home, if you're able to do creative projects or not able to do creative projects, your life still matters and you matter. Do you recommend watching the entire sixth season of Girls consecutively? I do not recommend watching the sixth season of Girls at all. Josh and I attempted. No, we did. Josh we, and I we were watched, very successful. <laughs> we watched the sixth season of Girls last night because we've been trying to finish it. It's been a real slog. But um, yeah, we finished it last night. And I would say that's not one I'd recommend. I would say pick another 
uh, prestige television series. Avenue or, 5 is great. Avenue 5 is great. Or if you're me, watch any reality TV available to you, even like if it's like, you know, the great Turkish shoemaking competition, or even if it's like a reality competition show for hairdressers dressers from Texas, like whatever it is. I will say Allison believes in the sacred bond of watching all 37 seasons of any reality show, which I have great respect for. Listen, those are my friends. <laughs> they get really good after like the first decade. That's when they really get into their own. Josh is referring to Love Island, which has about <laughs> 45 episodes per season. And I highly recommend it um, if you're a fan of social experiments. Never have I felt more naive than when I realized exactly how much Love Island content exists in the world. It is Love Island. Compared to COVID-19, I think it's the second most virulent strain. It's rapidly spreading. <laughs> okay. So there's this concept out there of flattening the curve right now. Allison, what is that and what impact could it have on the spread of COVID-19? So an NPR article called Why Staying Home Saves Lives says, it's all part of an effort to do what epidemiologists call flattening the curve of the pandemic. So the idea is to increase social distancing in order to slow the spread of the virus so that you don't get a huge spike in the number of people getting sick all at once. If that were to happen, there wouldn't be enough hospital beds or mechanical ventilators for everyone who needs them, and the U.S. hospital system would be overwhelmed. That's already happening in Italy. So the idea is to slow down the influx of serious cases being brought into our hospitals by slowing down the rate at which um, contagion is happening, the rate at which people are picking up this illness. It's trying to lower the rapidity with which people are getting sick. And in a New York Times article uh, entitled the here's the biggest in a New York Times article entitled here's the biggest thing to worry about with coronavirus they said that there are 45 they said that there are 45,000 ICU beds in the USA and a moderate outbreak of coronavirus would mean that 200,000 Americans might need an ICU bed so we need to slow the rate of infection so that the hospitals aren't overwhelmed past capacity um, so flattening the curve involves social distancing and staying home means reducing the risk of infection for others because even people who are asymptomatic could still be carriers of COVID-19. That includes teenagers and that includes children and that includes everyone. But the biggest group that that includes is the 20 to 29 year old uh, sec sector. What Segment. It's the 20 to 29-year-old segment because that is the largest percentage of asymptomatic carriers. And also right now we're sort of being the cockiest jerks because we're just going to bars still. Well, on that note, there's only one question left on the list. Allison, I do love licking doorknobs. Is this the right time to maybe suspend or reconsider the number of doorknobs I lick on a daily basis? So here's what I'll say, and I don't want to kink shame, but if you're a doorknob licker, I would recommend bleaching that doorknob washing the bleach off with soap and water, washing the soap off with more water, and then licking the doorknob. And I would only do that in your own home. That was very informative. Thank you. You're very welcome. So, Allison, here we are at the end of the first episode of The Illness Chronicles. In your mind, what are the big takeaways from this episode that you want listeners to walk away with? So... I would love for us to jam about this together because I know that these are things that Josh is also really passionate about. Um, but I'll, I'll start with a personal one to me, and that's the idea of accommodations. Um, 
we need to make the workforce accessible to people with all abilities. Um, long after this is hopefully just a memory, I'm hoping. Um, I'm hoping that we don't all die from this, but it's scary. But long after this, um, I hope that we remember that it wasn't that hard to let people work from home, that it wasn't that hard to figure out ways to make jobs and school more accessible to people who need accommodations, and that we're able to do that because we value every life and every every mind that we have. And one that Josh and I are both really passionate about is the idea of universal health care. Um, do you want to talk about that? Yeah. I mean, it's funny that this has become a topic of debate in our culture because, you know, the the popular, the old acorn, uh, a rising tide lifts all ships, especially right now. What we're seeing is that it, it's it's horrifying how cruel nature can be to expose the flaws of our system in a situation where one person is sick and doesn't have resources. The impact on the rest of culture and society what we're watching right now is exactly what happens when there is no safety net, when there is no support system, when we have a system that requires people to first go to CVS and then go to their doctor, which they likely do not have or cannot pay for, when there is no central location, a government-provided safe space for folks who are dealing with this disease, which is going to be very common during this time. It, it, it underscores exactly how big of a gaping void not having nationalized health care is. And as we've watched this Democratic primary progress, the idea that Medicare for all is this controversial subject is baffling in the face of a pandemic because now we're seeing that all kinds of folks need that access and don't have it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, and just to, to cut in here, because I don't want this to seem like like this is just coming from a proverbial Bernie bro. I just want to say universal health care is a human right. And um, we right now have two options. Um in terms of who we are going to elect as our Democratic representative for presidential consideration. And um, we only actually have one choice, and that choice is Bernie Sanders. We need to vote for Bernie Sanders because we need universal health care. We need... um, we need to provide financial support for people who are struggling. We need to cancel student debt. We need to do all of these things that make this world accessible and livable for people of all abilities, people of all classes, and people of all races. And I would say stepping outside of the, as a professional journalist, I have no political opinions. What I would say as someone who is passionate about our community, staying healthy, is that my idea is that I look forward to a day where it's no longer a political topic of, of, of Medicare for all, but a recognition that only a system that covers everybody will help and, and make security for all people. And the fact that we're talking about this from the vantage point of chronic illness, and again, it's sort of pointing out that in a time of crisis, the most vulnerable among us become like the, 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 they are the people carrying the most weight, even more than ever. And, you know, to dream of a world where everyone can turn to our collective resources for that kind of support should not be political. It should not be about one candidate. Unfortunately, we live in a system where not everyone is endorsing this plan, which is has made it more political than it needs to be. But, yeah, it, it's a very stark choice. And we're thinking about the next one and the people in between, the folks who deal with this every day. And... Uh, I think we both agree that that's that's something we we are putting our two cents down on. Kaching kaching. <laughs> kaching kaching. Um also as we move hopefully uh in the longer term out of this moment of crisis, 
I hope that we take away a new way of looking at work. Um, I, I'm really curious to hear like the common abled person's um, takeaway on what it was like to work from home if they were able to, because um, I saw this thing online today, maybe it was on Twitter about this, about, um, about transitioning to like more project-based work that like you as a worker would get to work from home and decide, you know, the timeline of your own projects, but have like certain projects that you need to accomplish. Um, and so partially, first off, as just like an American citizen, I think that this model of capitalism that's like very go, 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 go um, in the workplace is not sustainable and makes it really hard for us to live good lives. And that's why we're here. We're here to live good lives. Um, and secondly, as someone who lives with chronic illness, this would make work sustainable for me in a long-term way, which is something that I'm always thinking about. Um, so I'm, I'm really hoping that we're able to reassess how we think about productivity. Well, certainly when we think about communal voices in this country and around the world, it was unified labor action that brought us the work we have today because left to its own devices, capitalism called for people to work for 14 hours a day, not have weekends, not receive legal tender, but government, but, but corporate credits. You know, it's taken a unified voice over the centuries just to preserve you know, a five day a week, eight hour, that, that basic structure only came out of concerted political effort to make space for people to live, as Allison was just talking about. Bread and roses, the idea coined by Rose Schneiderman, a famous labor activist Jew. Right. So, you know, maybe is this a time where we look at our system, see what it demands of us, see what exposure it gives in a time of crisis like this to people who have very little resources and say, hey, maybe we can come together again and say we demand more of life and more from the system than it's giving us right now. Absolutely. Um, and I also want to say, just in closing, that um, people who don't live with illness um, who don't live with disability, people who are under the age of 65 and don't live with these things, this is your time to really step up. This is your time to advocate in your communities for social distancing and self-isolation. This is your time to speak up about accommodations outside of this moment of crisis for folks who need it. This is your time to speak up about universal health care. This is your time to get to the polls. This is your time. I know a lot of folks are always asking, like, what can I do? How can I help? I want to be an ally. This is the moment. Um, please don't let us down. Please don't let us down. So on that note, <laughs> one last reminder that your worth is not based on your capitalist productivity. Get rest. Eat food that makes you feel good. Take your meds and care for yourself and your community. You can stay tuned um, by following me um, on Instagram at The Illness Chronicles um, and on Twitter at The Illness Crow One, The Illness C-H-R-O number one. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.